Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Thank you, Sarah. We are kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we come to you on the heels of an unlikely French Open weekend. The kickserveradio.com team is comprised of five-time finalist, three-time French Open champion, Mats Wielander. He's in Haley, Idaho. Mats, uh, a little bit of a different weekend from what we saw in the U.S. Open with all of those matches going the distance, a couple of one-sided affairs in this men's and women's final at Roland Garros. Yeah, sort of anticlimactic to me. I thought that, especially on the men's side, that uh, Nadal and Djokovic was going to be a classic. I thought that Djokovic was actually the favorite to win the tournament when they started. Um, but again, I guess we, we just have to bow to the greatness of Rafa Nadal on any kind of clay court. And then I have to say, Iga Swantek, a uh, great Polish girl. What a great player uh, she is. And uh, she's going to win multiple majors. So in a way, um, it, it was a good weekend. Johnny Levine joins us as well, the two-time Texas Longhorn All-American from Phoenix, Arizona. Johnny, you had a good go of it at the French Open. You know your way around the grounds a little bit. You quartered the doubles in 89 with your good buddy Eric Carita. Uh, Again, you saw this coming. You saw Nadal as the clear-cut favorite, and you're not surprised at all by this, this result. Not really. And what we had talked about last time, Andy, was um, – Nadal having putting the fear factor into all the other players. And I, and I really do think that it had something to do with it. I mean, he played some really good players. I think they were in awe of Nadal, you know, center and some of these other guys. And, and then eventually, I mean, Nadal just, just was hitting the ball too well. I mean, he just seemed unbeatable. And, and like he said in his interview, you know, that that's his home. I do think uh, I agree with, uh, with Matt's. I think the, the, Highlight this year, though, was the women's champion from Poland. That was mind-boggling to see what she did, not even go 7-5 in a set. I mean, basically just destroyed the whole field. I think that gal is could be the future of women's tennis. I, I'm, I'm really excited to hear our guests' thoughts on that, but um, she, she was incredible. That, that was fun to watch. And our guest today is one of the greats in American tennis, one of the better clay quarters we've ever had. He is Tennis Channel and IMG Academy's new director of tennis, Jimmy Arias, a guy that in 505 professional tennis matches, won five titles, got to five in the world in 1984. Jimmy, we've got a a situation here where, first of all, welcome to kickserveradio.com. We're going to finish 2020 with two players with 20 majors, so there's some symmetry there. We've watched Rafael Nadal win his 100th match at Roland Garros. He has won 13 titles. Take it from there on putting what we saw from the great Nadal into some historical perspective for us. I mean, look, we've had the big three, as we've been talking about for a long time now. Who's the greatest of all time? For a long time, everyone was talking about Roger Federer. Then Nadal came along. All of a sudden, he was making a claim for it. 
if you had asked me literally though, right before the U.S. Open, I would have said Djokovic is definitely going to be the greatest of all time because he has a winning record against both of the other two guys and he's younger and he's going to pass them in winning majors at some point. You know, not so sure. It's not that Nadal moved pretty darn well for a guy that's had knee issues and, you know, it seems as though he's going to win 15 more French Open. So even if he can't win anything else, he's going to keep on going in that department. It's going to be tough to catch. I did not realize with Rafa uh, that the problem is not the heavy clay courts we found out now, but the problem for him in May and June is the, the ad- adaptation from a fast clay court the one day the forehand is bouncing uh, really high and he gets away with hitting it short, cross court, bouncing on the service line, and, and guys can't do anything with it. Uh, and then the next match, it's cold, and then he struggles. I still think that Novak Djokovic is going to go down as the greatest. I still think that his body is going to last a little bit longer than Nadal's. I think that he can easily win the Australia, and he can win Wimbledon. Of course, he can win the U.S. Open if he stays away from, from uh, the line umpires. So I, I, this is going to make it tougher for him. It's going to push Nadal to stay in the game longer, most probably. But I still feel like Novak has a, a few more, even his best years ahead of him somehow. You know, it's funny to me, Matt, in some ways, because you're talking about the greatest of all time. These three guys, I don't think, would still be playing if they weren't all playing together at the same time. So Pete Sampras gets his 14th. No one's that close. I'm going to retire. You know, the top of my game is the greatest of all time. And who's Pete Sampras now, sort of? And, uh, you know, it's sort of interesting. These guys are making each other the greatest of all time, pushing each other. And it's still amazing to me in their mid-30s and Federer in his late 30s that they're still so far ahead of everybody else. It's, it, it seems impossible, really, what they've done. You know, Jimmy, I, I think the feat that Nadal has just accomplished, winning 13 French Opens. You know, on this show, Jimmy, we've talked about what is the, the toughest slam to win. And I've always thought the the French Open was the toughest slam just because of the grueling matches, the, the, the amount of effort it takes to win points, seven matches on that clay, you know, fighting. And Matt has said that he thinks that the French Open is not necessarily the easiest slam to win. You've played at the French, you, you know, you, you, you actually, and, and I'm not sure Andy knows this, but you are a French Open champion. You won the mixed doubles with Andrea Yeager in 1981. So you've had a lot of success there. I'd love your perspective on on how difficult it is to win a French compared to the other ones. And obviously what 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 Nadal has done is is maybe one of the greatest sports, you know, records in the history of in all of sports, winning 13 Frenches. First of all, bringing up my French Open win, thank you. Um, I was 16. What you don't know is that I actually peaked at 12, according to my father. So had I been allowed to play the French when I was 12, who knows? I might have won a few in singles, but yeah, I wasn't yet qualified to get in. As far as which slam is the most difficult to win, you can make the argument for the French that it's the most physical, that type of thing. But I think it depends on your game. Obviously, for Mats, the French would be the easiest one for him to win. That's the one where he was able to use his poise and his consistency and his speed and sort of be able to defend and he could do it all day. So it it was a, a court that made it a little bit easier for him. And what's changed over the years is from the time when Mats and I were playing was 
brass at Wimbledon was lightning. So it was very low, very skiddy. You had to play, you, you couldn't almost win from the baseline. So if you were a baseliner, Wimbledon would have been the hardest tournament for you to win back then. Um, US Open was much quicker than it is now or than it has been in the past few years. So what they've sort of done to the game a little bit is they've homogenized it to the point where every surface is kind of the same, even hardcore. Everybody plays the same game. They play from the back of the court. They try to hit the ball big from the baseline. And whoever's the best at that wins every tournament that they play. And that's part of the reason why we talk about these greatest of all time and they're winning everything. They didn't have to contend with really different conditions. The conditions are fairly similar. So I don't know that, I mean, obviously the French is the most difficult term for anyone to win because Nadal is a joke. He's, he's a, some, he's superhuman on that surface, just the way he plays and, and the comfort that he feels. So no one else can win it at this point. So it has proven to be the most difficult, but I think once you're done with Nadal, I think it's just the same guys are going to win the, because they're the best players playing the same style. Everyone's playing the same style. That part of the game actually bothers me a little bit, that, that we've lost a little bit of those, those uh, variety of games. No one can serve in volley. The ball's too slow. The court's too slow. The strings make it easier for hitting passing shots from ridiculous positions. And guys serve 140 miles an hour. And guess what? You can't serve in volley if you serve 140 miles an hour because you get about one step before the return has come back to you. So there's a whole host of reasons, but, I, you know, I, we'll see if we can start changing back to where there's a, a little more variety. I think it, I think it is, it's great to see the contrast in styles and how they hold up on different surfaces so that you see a guy like Dominic Team and you see Nadal and you see these guys and how they – uh, allow their clay court game to adapt to a hard court or a grass court or vice versa. Um, but I, I enjoy watching all of it, watching Nadal on clay. I mean, the marriage between game style and surface has, has never been more appropriate than what we've seen from him with these 13 wins. But I, I'll throw it back to Jimmy now that he's the director of tennis at IMG and say to you, what do we take away from what we see on these clay courts? What do we take away from what we saw at the U.S. Open and what we saw at the French Open that needs to be implemented into the training program for American tennis to benefit from what we've learned uh, from this crazy 2020 year, which has been so strange, uh, and to see who has adapted. And it seems like the mentally tough have ascended to the top, obviously, with Nadal winning again on Sunday. I mean, look, one of the things that I'm trying to do at the Academy now is, is kind of almost go back in time to a time when, when I played, when Matt's played, when Johnny played, everybody had a weakness. So you were trying to get to your opponent's weakness and hide your weakness. You're, you're, the way to play the match was you got to get your strength to that opponent's weakness. And something's happened over the last 25 years where – so many coaches are out there and their technique and they're working on the technique and they're feeding that kids hit the ball. They look fantastic. And most of them don't know how to play a match and how to win points and how to break down their opponent. And I'm sort of trying to bring that back to the Academy by playing a lot of matches competing. And what's funny is we have a new thing called UTR that these kids are freaked out about what their UTR is. And when you're all in one place and going to school together and competing together every day, you're also freaked out that you 
whoever you're playing, you know, everyone's going to talk about it within that group of kids that are, that's one of the things that made the Academy so competitive with each other is you wanted to be the top dog in that, in your circle in the group. So we have a double whammy now at the Academy. I'm playing, I'm playing this semester, 40 UTR matches um, just for this semester at the Academy with these kids trying to get them to learn how to play, learn how to break down their opponent, think a little bit outside of just what they're doing. And it, it actually even goes to the pros. I'm a little bit, I get annoyed watching the pros sometimes. When you play Nadal on clay and you play, play him your normal game from the baseline, guess what? He's 102. And at the French Open, you're going to lose. So it's time to try something, something different. I've heard that... Americans struggle, the struggle that they've had to get guys in the top 10 could have something to do with developing their game on hard courts at at a young age versus clay courts. That if you grow up on clay, you have a better chance to understand constructing points. And could that be one of the downfalls of where we stand right now in American tennis? Obviously, we have depth, but we don't have Grand Slam champions. You had great success at a young age. I'd like to know, you know, your perspective. You know the dirt. You know red clay. You know American tennis. What do you think of that? I mean, obviously, there's some, I think there's some truth to that. I feel as though it could be somewhat in the culture. And you do have to suffer a little bit on clay to win on clay because you have to build the points. You have to, to play those type of, of rallies and think through it. And life for Americans, most Americans, and you know, tennis players in particular, I'd say life is a little easier than it is in some other places. So we're soft from what I've seen, Americans, and we sort of get by with, we go for a big serve, go for a big forehand, one or two shots. That's good enough. For some reason, no one's teaching the backhand particularly well, because we've got a lot of crappy backhands on the, uh, on the U.S. side of things. And you kind of can't have weaknesses in today's game at least weaknesses that are that obvious or you're going to get exposed at some point so I think there's a lot of reasons you would say on the women's side however Americans they've been dominating sort of over the years obviously we've had Serena who's can continue to do very well but Americans throughout one other thing that's interesting that people and I don't know how to give anybody this I tell kids this at the academy because this is actually a true story after the U.S. Open semifinal in 1983, and I won Rome, and I was ranked five or six. Um, I got mono, and I was three months in bed because I'd played a little bit. I played too long with the mono, and I had time to reflect a little bit on what I'd done so far. And from eight years old, I had wanted to be number one in the world, and I also believed I would be number one in the world. And those are two really important things. You have to want it, and you also have to actually believe you'll do it. And I believed it. I, I yeah, I, I was sure, but I had three months in bed and I had time to reflect. And I actually said to myself, and I regret it to this day now. Um, I said to myself, I don't want to be number one in the world anymore. Number one, in the world's too famous, too, too, too much on their plate for my tastes. I'd rather, I hope I can just stay five. And I never played as well. Once I sort of changed that outlook on, on my game, I was not even close. I did have a nice little run in 87 for a minute, but, uh, you know, I think there's a few things you need to believe. You need to want it to be great, and you need to believe 
you put the work in, it's going to happen for you. And I don't know, maybe American players aren't believing it because they don't have anyone that's doing it right now. Well, and Matt's, if I may, when we first got together and did uh, a radio show, you really caught me off guard when I asked you in 1988, after winning three majors, beating Lendl in the final of the U.S. Open and becoming number one in the world, how much did your life change? My expectation was going to be, oh, my God, I, you know, I, I felt like I was in a rocket ship on my way to the moon. And instead, your response was, you know, it all went kind of to hell after that because you had reached the top of the mountain. And I guess maybe what you're mentioning here, Jimmy, and what you had mentioned, you know, previous to this match in the past was whoever said the journey to get to the top of the mountain is a lot easier than staying there. Yes. Uh, more important to me is go back to the, the root of tennis. What is tennis? What does tennis teach kids? That's what, Jimmy, you're saying, is that if I was a parent and I want to send my kid to do a sport, what I would like for them to do there and learn how to solve problems or at least want to solve problems. I don't really care as a parent when my kid is 35 years old and his or her uh, sports career is over. If they knew how to hit a forehand or hit a serve, I don't really care. But if they come out of there knowing how to solve problems or at least attempt to solve problems, that's it. I want to send my kid to tennis. And I think that's what you're talking about. And obviously that, that translates into being a great player because Rafa Nadal, again, he always, he deflects the question. Oh, it's the 20th major. I don't really think about it. I just think about the match today and this year's Roland Garros. And we think, oh, well, he must be. No, he isn't. Because that's the greatness with Nadal and Federer and even Novak Djokovic, I think. And I lost it. And, and Jimmy and Johnny, you can speak to this too. But the, one day I stood there and I lost the need to kick the butt of my opponent across the net. It didn't matter if it was first round, semis, finals. I just lost that desire to, to beat the guy across the net. And that's really what tennis is about. When you're emotionally not involved in the one-on-one -on -one battle, you're done when it turns into a job. And I think that's, that's why I, I agree with you, Jimmy, 100%. That's what we're, we're missing out on a little bit on the professional tennis. And, and I think we need to get back to it because it, it goes to show that's why Nadal wins. It's not because of his forehand or his backhand. It's because that, you know, that, that fight that he takes on every time. Jimmy, thanks so much for joining us and taking the time and celebrating uh, the end of the the, the, the major championship season with Rafael Nadal winning his 100th match at Roland Garros, his 13th title, his 20th major overall. As we look forward, and we'll give you the last word on this segment, looking at 2021, um, what's the workload going to be like for you trying to balance it out between your duties with Tennis Channel, your duties now at IMG Academy as the director of tennis? Uh, the workload is crazy, to be honest. I was I'm, I went through the first 54 years of my life without really working, just playing tennis and then doing a little TV now and then. That that was the uh, program that I'd sort of thought I should keep on that style and that thought process. I don't know what the heck happened, but this IMG thing does give me. I love helping kids. Exactly what Matt said, actually, earlier. It's not really about the forehands and the backhands. I love helping kids learn how to problem solve, how to think, how to talk positively to themselves. And I'm uniquely qualified in some ways because I was doing things mentally wrong. Um, the things I would say to myself during a match were not the, the things that were helping me win. And whatever happens through tennis, it, it builds character. 
and it's going to teach these kids how to deal with life, whether they're playing tennis or whether they're in their normal job. So I love that part of it. I'm going to continue probably doing that. Um, but it means that I don't get many vacations because when I go do tennis channel, I feel as though I've been away from the Academy for a week or two, I better get right back to work. So, uh, you know, that's where I got to, my wife, Gina might, might have a few things to say at some point, but anyway, I enjoyed seeing you guys, Matt's great seeing you, Johnny, as always, you're the best. Andy, thanks for having me on and, uh, take care guys. He's the pride of Buffalo, New York, along with an honorable mention to his brother, Kevin and, and Bobby bank as well. Jimmy Arias with Tennis Channel IMG Academy. Thank you so much for joining us on KickServeRadio.com. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Max Vlander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Max Vlander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with Mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Okay, everybody, it is time for Tennis Across America, and we are truly going cross-country today. We go from Jimmy Arias, Director of Tennis at the IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida, to Portland, Oregon, where we are now so pleased to be joined by the great Jonathan Stark, who heads up the Oregon Elite Junior Tennis Program out there, former Stanford star. And Starkey, you won a French Open title yourself, the doubles with Byron Black in 1994, what we're seeing from this Rafael Nadal uh, is, is unlike anything we've ever seen in the sport of tennis with one guy being so dominant at one tournament. Uh, what do you make of what you've seen from this guy over the course of the last decade and a half? I mean, I, 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 mean, I was thinking today, is this one of the greatest achievements in all of sports? I mean, the guy is absolutely incredible. He's, he's, he's shown – Every year, he's basically unbeatable on the uh, on the red clay at Roland Garros. He just uh, he gets the job done any way he can, and uh, uh, super impressive. In talking with Jimmy Arias earlier on the show, it, it, it sort of came up that American players were maybe worried more about being shot makers and being big hitters with big serves and big forehands. And Mats was a little bit more of an all-court, well-rounded guy. Where do you stand on that with regard to your junior development philosophy? Do you feel like 
the American game needs to become a little bit more like the European game. Um, and I guess by that, I mean being a little bit more of, let's call it a chess player. Yeah, potentially, Andy. I, I, I think that the game is going that way. And, you know, we have a little bit of a hurdle here in the Northwest because we play a lot of indoor tennis. And so, you know, it's it's really hard to to not kind of play big when you're indoors, you know, it's, 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 it's harder to develop your game in those conditions. I feel like, um, so really in, in, in my Academy, I, I really focus on an all core game and making the kids in, uh, come into net. I, I do a ton of uh, volley work and drills where they have to come in and learn to finish points in net, but, you know, whether it be with a drop volley or, you know, an overhead and, I think it's uh, definitely important. Uh, you know, most of our kids are going to, at best, going to play college tennis, and you got to play doubles. All the college coaches want kids that can play singles and doubles, and so I, I think it's important to to really promote the, that that all round uh, player. So, having had such great results as a doubles player, and, and you did quite well in the singles, but you won a you won a mixed doubles title at Wimbledon with Martina Navratilova. And do you try to influence your students to to play doubles as a means of, of actually really even becoming better singles players? I do, Andy. I, I you know I, I I just talk about becoming tennis players and whether that's singles, doubles, or whatever it is. And I think it's super important. There's you know there's a little bit of a Oh, a negative sometimes with the doubles and kids don't take it as seriously. And I think it's a big mistake. You know, you're, you're, you're learning so much. You're, you're like, I talked about, you're learning more at being at the net, you're working on your serve, you're working on your return. It's just another excuse to get out on the court and play and compete. And, and uh, so, so, yeah, I, 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 I stress both uh, definitely. Well, I sure appreciate you putting yourself on the line tonight. And the next time we get together, hopefully it will be for a longer a longer stint. This Tennis Across America is a little bit of a short segment. Well, thanks for having me, Andy. It's always, it's always a pleasure uh, catching up, and uh, I appreciate you having me tonight. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. want to thank Jimmy Arias, one of the great American tennis personalities, was a great player in his own right, does a tremendous job. Uh, at Tennis Channel, and we know he's going to do a great job at the IMG Academy. We are kickserveradio.com, also part of Tennis Channel, as we are part of the Tennis Channel podcast network. And on Sunday, Matts, we saw the unexpected. Now, let's just call it for what it was. You had Novak Djokovic winning this thing. Johnny Levine wanted none of it. He had Nadal winning this thing. I I had to agree with the 12-time champion, and and as it turns out, it's now 13. it seemed like when I saw your comments when you were still over in Europe calling the tournament that you really did an about face on Nadal after his first round match. I saw some comments that you made in the press about, well, if Nadal's going to play like this, he can't be beat. You on you went into this thing with Djokovic, the prohibitive favorite. What did you see from Rafa right out of the gate that changed your mind pretty substantially? So what I saw with Rafa was that he – he wasn't really um, trying or hoping to win uh, the majority of points the same way uh, as in May and June when the weather is is warmer. He wasn't uh, hoping that his forehand was going to bounce as high. He wasn't using that sort of cross-court loopy forehand, bounce on the service line, bounce uh, uh, above the shoulders of his opponent. He was playing a sort of a more open uh, kind of clay court tennis, more like he would play on a grass court or a hard court. Uh, and I think that, uh, again, uh, it just tells us that 
that the, the problem that he normally has at, at the French Open when it gets cold, it's only because he spent the last month and a half in, in very hot weather and uh, the ball is bouncing. So I think we saw a variety from Nadal that I, I wasn't expecting uh, on the backhand side. Um, even in the finals, he was hitting short cross-court backhands and he would loop one down the line. He had a couple of really cool little slice backhands that were neither drop shots, not deep. They were around the service line, bringing Djokovic forward. So I think Nadal showed a bit of uh, artistry that he doesn't have to normally. Um, and um, he, he embra- again, that's Rafa at his best. He embraced the challenge way more than I thought he would. Um, he didn't. He he stopped talking about the different tennis balls. He stopped talking about the conditions, and he was just welcome. Hey, this is the way it is. And um, I think I changed my mind. But I have to still say I'm going to stick to my guns. I, even after the semifinals, I think Nadal was not tested against Diego Schwartzman, and I thought Djokovic in the first two sets against Stefanos Tsitsipas in the semis, I thought he looked good enough. Where I thought he was going to uh, bully Nadal around a, a lot more than he did today. So Rafa, wow, unbelievable respect. I mean. That's the one we can't predict, guys, is we can predict a multiple Grand Slam champion uh, in the future. But to predict the love story that players have with a certain tournament, Rafa at Roland Garros 13 times, Roger at Wimbledon eight times, Novak Djokovic at the Australian Open, I think it's nine, I believe. Uh, That's the prediction we can never make. Speaking of predictions, Johnny, Matt's just mentioned one of your favorite players on the tour, and that was Diego Schwartzman. And I think... One of the Israeli newspapers, uh, and I know we were probably tickled when we heard this, they talked about it at the tournament, mentioned him as the biggest mensch in men's tennis. And I think you love the kid, so do I. He really had a good go of it. He made it to the semifinals. He had beaten Rafa in Italy just a couple of weeks ago, had a win over Dominic Team. How pleased were you to see that kid make it as far as he did? Yeah, it was, it was a great result for him. He, you know, the result Prior to that, you know, he beat Nadal in, in, in Italy and ended up getting to the final, so he's playing great. I think what, what, what is just so amazing to me about Schwartzman is, you know, at five feet seven, he's a little guy and he's playing, you know, guys are just so much bigger now in the game today. I always thought that one of the great players of, you know, recent history in in lieu of having to play giants was Michael Chang I don't know that he really gets enough credit for what he did on the tour at his size obviously he had the speed but he was very small he had a tremendous career so when I look at Chang and now I see the game how it's evolved to even bigger players stronger people hitting the ball harder what, what Schwartzman is doing is, is, is off the charts. And I think people don't understand how amazing that forehand is. I mean, that is a ch- huge weapon. It's one of the biggest shots on tour. And I think that's what enables him to play against these great players and stay in the matches and, and basically move them around. I mean, he controls the points oftentimes in his matches against these guys. But in the end, with Nadal uh, winning this event, when you look at who he played in, in every match. I mean, he really wasn't tested. He was most tested by Schwartzman to 7-6. So this this year might have been his easiest victory. He was complaining about the conditions. He was complaining about the balls. And and I'm wondering if, if these conditions didn't end up being better for him. I mean, the, the way he was hitting the ball harder and, you know, it wasn't heavy conditions. The balls weren't slower. And we thought that would be to his advantage. But Look at what he did, Matts, in, in all these matches. He killed guys, and he was whipping the ball 
very hard. And so it was an interesting thing to see that this was maybe his easiest French of all 13. Matt, let's talk about the other semifinalists because uh, with Stefano Tsitsipas, I felt that it was important for him to come off of that heartbreaking loss at the U.S. Open. We saw Zverev uh, have his heart broken in the final, but much earlier in the U.S. Open, we saw Tsitsipas go up two sets to one and 5-1 in the fourth against Borna Chorich, squander six match points and lose again in heartbreaking fashion, only to come back and push Djokovic to five sets in the semifinals. Were you at all pleasantly surprised maybe by that result to see Tsitsipas come right back and sort of ascend his place back among, you know, arguably the top five in the world? Yeah, very pleasantly surprised. I think to me, uh, Tsitsipas is the natural sort of overtaker of the crown once the big three are gone. I feel like he 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 looks like a star. Um, he walks around on the court like a star. He's got great body language when he's playing. He's an interesting player. Uh, uh, personality when he's on the court. He plays an interesting style of tennis. I love that uh, it's a little bit old-fashioned in a way, one-handed, backhand. It likes to come to the net. Uh, the forehand doesn't have a, a, a very severe Western grip on the forehand. In fact, it's semi-Western at best. Uh, and uh, so I think that, yes, very pleasantly surprised. I do think that he's going to be uh, the one that's going to be there all the time. I think Zverev will have a chance again, of course. Denis Shapovala will have a chance. Yannick Sinner, a young 18-year-old Italian, will have a chance. But I think Stefanos Tsitsipas is, is the one that the tour uh, is going to sort of uh, rely on being there on all the surfaces, in all the matches. And he does not quit. And I love that about him. He does not quit. And I love watching him play. You know, is he ever going to be at the same level as Roger Federer and, and Rafa and, and Novak? Mm, questionable with the backhand that he has, but I don't think that's important. I think it's the, it's the, uh, it's the uh, element of commitment that he has to the sport and the match he's involved in. That's what uh, intrigues me with Stefano. So, I mean, I love it. I mean, Andy, for you, you're, you're an old-fashioned guy. <laughs> what, what, what's up? We got one-handed backhands. They're not going anywhere. Tsitsipas, Dominic Team, of course, Grigor Dimitrov, Denis Shapovalov. I mean, is this going to bring tennis back 20 years by them coming forwards a little bit more? What do you think and what do you teach kids? Well, I'll tell you what, on our way out, before we go to, to break here, I will just say that I hit the one-hander myself and it was nice to see Jimmy Arias come on because I'm usually outnumbered on this panel with you guys and your two-handers and everybody else that we bring on. It was nice to have Lendl on that day as well. But I, I think that, you know, there's just so many different arguments to be made for, obviously you don't get the power off of the, the one-hander that you do off the two-hander, but it gives you a little bit more versatility and, and gets you in and out of corners a little bit better. I think a, a backhand grip on the one-hander is, is a good grip to be able to serve and volley with. So I think that there's advantages and, and, and points and counterpoints to be made on both. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk a little women's tennis because you brought up Iga Svatek early in the show and we haven't touched on that one. Sophia Kennan makes her second major final of the year. You're listening to kickserveradio.com with AZ, the great Mats Vlander, a three-time French Open champion and also two-time Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine. Don't go away. More to come right after this. Okay, everybody, you've heard us talk about Squad Pod on the show quite a bit, and I'm now joined by Melise Michael, and he is the product manager for Squad Pod. And Melise, 
tennis professionals at private clubs with their students, they like to use Facebook to communicate. So tell us a little bit about why SquadPod might be different from something like just using Facebook to communicate. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. So SquadPod is designed and built around something we like to call closed architecture. Everything you do in SquadPod stays confidential in our U.S. owned and operated communication platform that's based out of Scottsdale, Arizona. Unlike Facebook, where anyone can kind of find your pages, view your discussions, and even your photos, things in SquadPod are non-discoverable. And it's only accessible by specific people that you want to have access to that content. So it's private, it's confidential, and it's secure. But how does SquadPod handle my data? Because you hear a lot about these companies that are willing to share it with other companies or even sell it. Yeah. So we don't mine or sell any of your data for predictive analytics or training or anything like that. What you'll find out there is a majority of the social media platforms actually built on the opposite of what we are, which is open architecture and have no problem selling third parties, everything about you, your decisions, all your data. So within open architecture systems, privacy kind of becomes this illusion, almost like a false sense of security. Seems like there's lots of options on the places that I use SquadPod. Help me understand what those are. Great question, Andy. So you can use SquadPod on and off the court with family or even for your business and at work. It's got chat, video, file sharing, and discussions all in one place. Best of all, we're committed to being 100% American-made and protecting your right to communicate privately and securely. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I have SquadPod and I love it. And, you know, learn more about privacy and and SquadPod at squadpod.com slash serve. So that's S-Q-U-A-D-P-O-D dot com slash serve S-E-R-V-E. And and based on this conversation, I'd say that if you have Facebook, there's no reason you shouldn't check out SquadPod as a new way to communicate safely and privately. I highly recommend it. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. I want to thank Jimmy Arias for joining us earlier in the show. You're joined by the KickServeRadio.com team of Andy Zoden, Mats Vilander, and Johnny Levine. And we are part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And we've talked a lot today, as well we should, about Rafael Nadal winning his 13th major championship at the French Open, 20th overall, 100th match win at Roland Garros. But we have a new star in women's tennis Mats that has burst onto the scene, the Polish young lady, 19 years of age, Iga Swiatek, who coincidentally holds Rafael Nadal in extremely high esteem. That is her hero. And to see her win her first major championship on the same weekend that Rafael Nadal would win his 20th was a pretty impressive thing to see. Not quite the same story as Mats Wielander winning his first at age 17 at the French Open, but to win her first out of the blue. How surprised and how impressed were you? Um, I think I was um, both surprised and impressed. We've been talking about Iga uh, Swantek for a long time, for a few years. She's always had a, a, been a very complete player, very all-round. And, um, I mean, she took clay court tennis to a different level. I'm not sure that I've ever seen a, a woman play better clay court tennis than she did in pretty much every match. I mean, she only lost maximum four games in any of the 14 sets she won. So that's, that's an unbelievable thing. Uh, to me, it's going to be interesting to, to, to see how she evolves 
because her, her stroke production is very different from other women. Uh, she has a forehand that has so much more topspin than any other woman. Maybe the uh, Australian Sam Stozer had something of a similar forehand, but she hits her forehand closer to the body than most other women do. So she doesn't get the leverage uh, of the long arm. And her two-handed backhand is very similar. She hits it very close to her body. And somehow she generates all this power. Um, she's very natural coming forwards. It's, somebody said, how did she learn uh, to sort of come forward? That's, par- that's part of her game. She's looking to take a short ball and come to the net. And she doesn't necessarily volley particularly well, but she's very good at the transition game because she's always looking to come forwards. Who else does that? Rafael Nadal. We talk about him as a baseline. He likes to come forwards when the time is right. So what I'm hoping here is to see Iga Swantek manage to play good on faster courts because with those kind of swings close to your body with, with a lot of topspin, some women are able to overpower that style. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how she goes. But yeah, I think her, Bianca Andresco, they, they bring something different to the women's game that uh, maybe it's more modern than the rest of the women. I'm not sure, but but sure, what a player she is, Iga Swantek. And someone, Johnny, who brings something a little different, I think, to American women's tennis is Sophia Kennan. And it was a disappointing uh, result for her in that final, the way she went down 6-4, 6-1. But the fact of the matter is she wins the Australian Open. She makes it to the final of the French Open. She is clearly a legitimate star in American tennis right now. And with her attitude and her competitive demeanor on the court, that seems like beyond what she does with her racket in her hand, just, just her presence and her attitude on the court seem like that's going to really carry her to some great results for years to come. You know, I, I think that, uh, Kenan showed me something that, um, I don't know if many people understand, what she did by getting to the finals of this year's French Open. You're talking about a player of her caliber winning the Australian Open, being ranked in the top five in the world, and having a result at the Italian Open, losing 6-0 to Azarenka, and coming back in her next tournament and, and getting to the finals of the French Open. That, to me speaks volumes of Sophia Kennan. So I, I just think that her mental uh, stability must be off the charts to be able to come back and have a result like that. And, and so I think that when you looked at her and after the match sitting in the chair and she had the tears, I mean, this girl wants it bad and she's going to be around for a long time. She is tough as nails. Uh, back real quick on, on Shvian. I think I said it right there, Matt's, but uh, what I just loved about her game is, is two things. I think she is a phenomenal athlete. I mean, she's, she's just a great athlete, she's a tall, strong girl, but this gal's got confidence. I mean, French open finals, like, like it's nothing. I mean, you didn't see any nerves and um, she just has an air about her and a confidence about her that, that is, is really refreshing to see. Um, for for a girl that comes from Poland out of nowhere that really has taken, you know, tennis fans that didn't know who she was. And all of a sudden, here she is. And so she's going to be so exciting uh, to watch and um, loved her interviews after the match. And, and she's a real fun player. So we're excited about that. Matt's the 800-pound gorilla in the room, if I may address this, was some news that you made 
while you were over there uh, early in the tournament, Andy Murray went out on the court, took a wild card, played Stan Warinka in the first round, did not put up much of a fight. And I think you made some comments that if you read through the comments, um, they seemed a bit critical of Andy Murray's effort out there. But then as you went on in your statement, you talked about the fact that you had regret about some of the decisions that you had made in the latter part of your career and were maybe questioning whether or not Andy Murray was doing something similar to what you wish you had not done. And that was met with some criticism throughout the tennis world, particularly from Nick Kyrgios, who has a tendency to want to weigh in on everything, whether he comes to the tournament or not. But do you want to in any way touch on that subject? I know it's not comfortable, but I feel like it's something that we should at least touch on uh, just because it, it just made such big news. It seemed like in the early part of the French open. Yeah. Thanks Andy uh, for that. Yeah. I think um, again, um, I wasn't questioning his physical effort. He was out there. He, he's been training really hard. Obviously he's as fit. I think now as he's ever been, um, he took a wild card into the French Open, and and uh, they should give him a wild card. I agree with that too. Um, and the the problem, I guess, I have a little bit is, is you see Andy Murray out there, and he's getting a, a good beat down by Stan Wawrinka, uh, which on the clay court could have happened even when Andy was at his best. So that's all good too. But what I didn't see from Andy was an emotional involvement. I mean, if you go back and look at Andy Murray when he was at his best, if he was getting beaten that badly, there would be something happening. Either he, he had some physical sort of problem with his body or he would start swearing or talking to his box and he would really show the crowd, which is why we love Andy Murray so much. He would show that he cares so much to the point where he actually sort of couldn't keep, uh, keep a good language going. Uh, which was funny at times, for sure. And I think that's what I sort of missed, watching Andy uh, getting beaten. And then I go back to what I did. And uh, we talked about it before with Jimmy. There were days when I was 29, 30, 31 years old that, that I was dying to try and win the tennis match that I was involved in. It was as important as it's ever been. But then there were other days when it wasn't as important. And I think that's where, where I like to go back to, of course, tennis is a job. And of course, physically, you're going to go through the, the, the hardship that it takes to, to qualify. But now if you're emotionally not that involved by not showing any signs of frustration, should you get or take a wild card uh, at a French Open. And I'm not saying that's a switch that you can just switch on. So I feel for Andy Murray, obviously. But at the same time, I think uh, Andy Murray most probably needs to get out there uh, into the trenches again, win enough matches where his ranking gets high enough, where he has qualified straight away into the main draw of Grand Slams rather than take a wild card. And if you do take a wild card, then I think you need to be so much involved that you show that you really, really, really care about getting back to the top of the game. And I did not think I saw that from Andy Murray. So I, I feel like the people that commented on this, Nick Curious included, I don't think they read the whole thing. Um, I don't, I was never ever being critical of, of Andy Murray as a player, but I think the player I saw, whoever he was, happened to be Andy Murray didn't seem that involved in the beatdown he was involved with. And then you question it. If that was a French junior wildcard that didn't involve himself or herself more emotionally, the French Federation, they're not going to give that player another wildcard. I promise you that much. So again, great effort by Andy by trying to come back on all that. And um, just wish 
to see the old Andy Murray back a little bit where, where show me that you care slightly more, Andy. So Johnny, is it not then somewhat of a double-edged sword in that Andy Murray, for what Matt's was looking for from an emotional standpoint, has also been to some extent harshly criticized for being the guy that's out there kind of a brooding personality with a negative demeanor and chirping his box. And, you know, he grabbed his hamstring after he lost a point or some of the things that he showed on the court that Matt's was kind of looking for, but that I don't think necessarily went over well. And it almost took Yvonne Lendl to say, look, enough with all of that. If you want to win a major, you got to get your head on straight. And maybe this was just a version of Andy Murray that was, look, this is an inevitable situation here, similar to what we saw with Novak Djokovic in the final where he didn't seem particularly emotional while he was in the midst of getting beat 6-11-6-2 in the first two sets of the final. So is it kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for Andy Murray? Yeah, I think Andy Murray, um, it, it's hard to say what's really going on with his body. And, and um, we don't really know. He, he looks like the hips are, his hip is okay. At the U.S. Open in the first round, we saw the fight of Andy Murray that we're used to. I mean, he was down two sets to love against Nishioka in the first round, and I think he was down maybe a break in the third. And he showed the heart and the guts that he that that he that we've seen from Andy Murray to, to come back and win that match. I mean, that was a Herculean effort to get through that. And I think the next round, he, he got beat pretty bad by, I'm going to just call him Felix, because I don't want to get crucified for, for crushing his name. Ajay Aliasimi, I believe. FAA. There you go. So, you know, he, he, he did get beat pretty bad there. Um, I think he has it in him. I just don't know if his, you know, he's played enough tennis. His level is there. I don't know the conditioning. You know, you, now he gets a wild card in the French. He's thinking, you know, look at what he did at the Open with that effort. I mean, it was really just a few weeks ago that he showed what Matt's wants to see in him. And I don't know that, that Andy thought he would do anything differently. We don't know what happened that day. We don't know what he was thinking. We don't know the, the condition. I think he's thinking, you know, Andy Murray is a fighter and a winner, and he wants every opportunity he can. You know, he, he, I didn't actually see the match, so I can't say, you know, effort-wise or what have you. I understand Matt's perspective, but I also want to give – a, a true champion, a three-time Grand Slam champion, uh, Andy Murray, the benefit of the doubt as well. There you go. All right, Matt's Nick Curios. He he comes in and he he speaks his mind, and that's what we love about you is that you're gracious and you're a humble champion, but you do call him like you see him. Uh, but but Nick Curios hasn't hasn't done some of the things that you've done. He's the current guy. He's kind of the poster boy for social media in the sport of tennis, and he creates a lot of controversy some of his points are well well taken sometimes you kind of roll your eyes and go not sure I can go with that one what's your response to what you heard from him directly oh I mean first of all I have to say I love uh, I love Nick Curious as a tennis player when he when he wants to be there and he tries to 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 entertain uh, but but in the end he tries to win the match I mean he he really is an unbelievable player that we we would love to have him at the top of the game. And is he? Not quite. But he could really save the men's game once the big three are gone. Him together with Stefanos Tsitsipas and some of the young guys coming up. So uh, I think that I think that everybody, I'm sure Nick does too, have a problem with himself the days he walks on the tennis court and he doesn't try 
Uh, and I'm not saying he does it from the first point on, but he does it in certain matches. And, and at times you can sort of walk to the other side and not try to return a serve because you want to save energy and whatnot. But I think it's happened a little bit too much with Nick Kyrgios. So I would love for him to, to uh, get fired up and, and to show the likes of me, for example, uh, the, the, the former players or, or so-called experts that are, are critical of, of some players when they are not emotionally involved. That is the only time that I'm critical of any player is when, because I think that's what the game is about. That's what professional sports is about. And that's what uh, I think the, the players need to realize how fortunate we are and how grateful we should be to be able to do this sport as our job so when we're not in it emotionally should we be playing i don't think so i really i know you can't switch it on but for nick curious um i think the, the the big mistake that the tour is making is when nick curious has one of these moments when he decides not to play and they find him and then later they suspend him which means he can't play at all to me it seems like the penalty for somebody who doesn't try uh, on the court is make him play every week that's what he doesn't want to do. He doesn't want to play. So why do we take him away from the tour for three months? Make him play all the time. And I think that would serve, uh, serve well for Nick Curious. So I love it. I mean, I really do. I think Nick, Nick is, uh, he, he seems to be a great guy. I've interviewed him a couple of times. And I know him and Andy Murray are very good friends. And, and I love that he's out there. I love that he's you know, taking on the fight here, which is not a fight <laughs> from my side. But, but to him it is. And uh, the guys like me were critical of some of the players because nothing is held higher uh, than the game of tennis to me. That's the only reason I'm in it. I'm not in it for the personalities uh, or the strokes themselves. I'm in it for the, uh, the uh, emotional part and the problem solving that tennis brings to a human being's brain, whether you're Nick Curious or Andy Murray or you're a six-year-old player. All right. This is kickserveradio.com. We are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Thank you so much to Jimmy Arias for coming on with us. He is with Tennis Channel and IMG Academy as he is their new director of tennis. So congratulations to him for that. We're joined by the great Mats Vlander, seven-time major champion, three of those at Roland Garros. And also we are joined by Johnny Levine, former two-time Longhorn All-American And we will be back real soon with much more from kickserveradio.com. Tennis on air with AZ, Mats, and Johnny. Hope you enjoyed the French Open. Congratulations, Rafael Nadal, on your 13th. Congratulations, Iga Svantec, on your first of probably several. And we will be back real soon with more.